Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Alex Worrell, chairman of ZoneMe, a company which develops music holograms known as Hologes. Alex, hello. Hello, how are you, Matthew? I'm very well. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, uh, that sounds incredibly interesting, and I really want to get on to that. But before we get to that and to leadership, we should touch on how COVID has impacted um, uh, your business. Uh, so what sort of effect has this taken? Uh, well, it's had, a, it's had a quite a huge effect, but we, at the bottom line, we think it's actually given us a better foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, what it's done, COVID, is to make us refocus. Right. Our, uh, to, in, in the middle of 2019, we won a UK uh, Government Innovate uh, Challenge Scheme, um, and 2020 was going to be our big year of the launch. We were going to go to Glastonbury and showcase our sound. We were going to go to Expo in Dubai, showcase the stuff there. And we were going to go into Harrods um, and showcase the stuff there. All of that got cancelled or postponed. Of course. Right. Um, in, in, in its uh, most simple term, Matthew, um, the great outdoors, which is what we were going to do, became a small indoors. Right. Um, what, what we've been doing, though, is to, is to take that time um, and uh, refocus and uh, reschedule a lot of our rollout plans. So um, we've, we've uh, our centre in, in, in Basingstoke, our demo centre, that got shut down as well because we couldn't do social distancing. Um, we couldn't work with the universities. Um, and so sort of we had, um, we, we, as I said, we, we had to refocus an awful lot. So what we've done is to... Um, Look at uh, our phase two and three and four and say, okay, well, we'll bring those forward. So we was originally going to build a, um, a development center into Leeds. And we were going to work with all the universities up there on AI and artificial intelligence and a lot of other things. And so we brought that forward and with a great help of Leeds Council um, and Leeds Enterprise Partnership, we've, we managed to do that. It's, been a strange experience, Matthew, sort of looking at buildings without actually going there, right? Um, and interviewing staff without actually seeing them. Um, so we brought all those together. We've um, managed, I suppose because of lockdown, there's a lot of people you can get hold of a lot quicker. So um, guys like the Professor David Hogg, who's the foremost expert in AI in the country, we've managed to get and be able to talk to him Usually he'd be lecturing, usually he'd be all over the world and talking, but we've, we've managed to get him um, and get him on board. So, yeah, so we've, we've gone ahead, but in a lot different direction than we've originally planned. Well, it's interesting to see how people are able to adapt and overcome these circumstances. Um, each week on the podcast, we have a topical question of the week, and this one dovetails quite nicely into this. Um, what role do you think that the office will play in the future of work, both within your own organization and the wider world? I think the office will play a very much less 
uh, they're less important. I think keep it. I think what we're learning with things like Zoom and 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 and, and Teams and all those ways of acting, you can actually save a great deal of of time and money in travel. So I think that there. Um, I listened to the other day to some people in London who were uh, worried about how on earth they get up the elevators right, um, in a social distancing time. So I think going forward, we, we're actually going to be um, far more working from home and less travel. Um, certainly from my point of view, I was in, in and out of London um, two, three times a week. Um, and you added it up and it was four or five hours a day I was sat on the trains. I can't do that now. Mm. Um, yet the Zoom meetings and the, and, and the team meetings go on a bit longer because um, everyone likes to have their say. But, but we'll, we'll get used to that and we'll be able to restrict that. And me as a chairman, I'm, I'm having to sort of stop people just talking and putting all the funny backgrounds up and all that sort of thing. But I think going forward, the... The, the the office will actually form less of a less of a fulcrum point, um, and we'll learn to go back to to, to the, the home type working. Um, and so I think it's a different way of working. Certainly in the creative industry, I'm seeing a lot of people that used to go into Soho and Salford and all those sort of places every day, and they're actually being as creative, if not more creative by actually spending more time thinking. What sort of effect do you think that this is going to have on commercial real estate? I'm sorry, on commercial? Real estate. Oh, I think, uh, right, okay. Um, let's take it sort of one or two ways around that. The first, if we take, um, I think the biggest effect is actually going to be in the high streets and the malls. We've gone from about 8% online shopping to about 80 90% online shopping. And I think that what's going to happen with the shopping malls, and we saw some of them starting to go into trouble this week, uh, a lot of the shopping malls will be struggling to get people in there. And once they struggle to get the footfall, they'll be the next night, next, the next part down, which will be the the, the restaurants, the the uh, coffee houses, and all those will. Well, and had the footfall, so they won't be paying the rents those uh, that they've been receiving previously. So I think that that's that side, um, and that's you know from the shopping side. I think there's an answer to that. I think that a lot of the shopping malls and the high streets will actually become more entertainment game zones and things like that. And that's certainly the one where we're, where we're positioning ourselves and how to look at. I think though that. With a commercial rent, um, one wonders about the big city centres. Um, do, do people still want to go into the city centres? Do they want to go in the trains? Can, can they get? Is, is it going to do different timings? Is it going to stagger timings and and, and work timings? Um, and the only way in is to go by train or bus or whatever. So that's going to be very difficult. Mm. So I think we'll see more out out town out-of-town sort of office type things that start to grow up, that start to expand. Um, so I think, you know, to answer the question, I think in the city centre, I think the the, um, the 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 rental costs are reduced, in which case, you know, so the city centres always had high 
rates values as well. So I think the council's got to struggle with some of it. And then we go more out, out of town where people can actually park and and work 24 hours. Um, so I think that that'll be sort of, that, 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 that'll be a natural follow-on from this. So, yeah, I think the landlords will suffer. But uh, the high streets have been suffering even pre-COVID. Now, if we could talk a bit about what your company produces, uh, it does sound quite interesting. If you could just give us a, a, a small snippet about uh, your product. Okay. Um, I'll start with the sound side, only sound, because that's the very, very innovative thing. Uh, what we have produced and only is a is a sound system that instead of sound coming out of speakers, we effectively through a lot of algorithms um, fire out from speakers and can place any sound anywhere within or more importantly without a speaker range. So um, you can actually in, to to explain that perhaps even easier. Um, if we had an orchestra, you could put an orchestra in, in your living room and you could walk around and you could sit with the uh, the violin section and listen to it as though it was a violin section. Um, you could listen to it as though you were the conductor. You could listen to it as though you were doing the percussion section or the horn or the harp or whatever have you. So an infinite number of ways you can actually listen to that music. That That is important for things that we talk, touched upon there with the holograms, because, you know, with the holograms, we can actually pick the, our sound up and put it into someone's mouth instead of having wall-to-wall sound or or, or, or um, sound that, that is, is detached from a screen. We can actually pick it up and say, okay, well, that's the person speaking. Um, we'll put the sound in their mouth. Uh, if that's a dog or the... Or the, or the door opening, uh, we'll actually uh, put the sound as, as, as that. It's a real, it's, it's a real true-to-life sound rather than surround sound, which is what everyone's got used to. So that that's the innovative thing, and that's the bit that we won the um, UK Digital Catapult Innovate Soundscapes Award for in 2019. That's the one we were going to go and... Um, and actually do our big launches all this year, sort of right through the festival rooming, um, Dubai. But, um, so, so that's, that's that side of it. So, um, um, again, thinking about this, um, if you go to watch a 3D, uh, cinema and a big elephant comes roaring out of the screen, um, it usually lands in the, you know, 3D cinema, it lands in the seat in front of you. Well, with our sound system, instead of the sound coming from above you, around you, or, or whatever, have you under your feet, it's, you know, sort of, we, we pick the sound up and actually move it with the elephant coming out of the room. So that's the innovative thing. Um, and that's the thing that we are working um, with to places like the BFI, the British Film uh, Institute, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of the AI things, uh, artificial intelligence, where we can actually work and um, and and break down and, and, and locate sounds and automatically. Now, unfortunately, our time together uh, has uh, expired. Uh, but before I let you go, what does the next twelve months have in store for Zone Me? Uh, exciting times. Um, uh, we are 
acting, and we were, you know, I think the big theatres and those uh, will struggle, but we will actually uh, focus more on the games market and the, and, and the individuals, and that's what the COVID has taught us to do. Well, I'd like so to... I'm, I'm very, very uh, happy that the next 12 months we, we will be, we, we will catch up what we've lost because of COVID. Well, Alex, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been thank a pleasure you. having you. Uh, of course, uh, we are out of time now, but please do come back on the show uh, soon. Alex, thank you. Thank you that was Alex Worrell, chairman of ZoneMate. And now, if you haven't heard before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did again again extremely fortunate to play with the, the captain 
um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge when it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in your organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. 
there was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, mm. I had the, the impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? 
and of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did. Uh, um, it did but make then again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm-hmm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think, particularly on the field or the sidelines, that strikes you 
as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well, he's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many... Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. 
And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. It, we have some great players, of course, but without the attitude uh, alongside that, going back to an earlier question. You, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time it's a huge part of your life I don't think you can switch off when you're in in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if if these top managers and leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over it, go over the past, and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.